Welcome to Keeping It Secure, the Hashicast show about security trends, cloud adoption challenges, and security innovation. Join your hosts, DevOps Rob and DevOps Adil, as we tackle the complexities of cloud security and industry-wide challenges. Yo, so Keeping It Secure, this is episode 11. Um, A lot has happened out in the world since the last episode. a lot of things that we are going to chop up and, uh, you know, before we do, introduce my co-host, DevOps Adil. How you doing, bro? I'm good, Bruce. It's all good, mate. But yeah, lots of things happened, right? Things have changed. Feels like September was the month of data breaches and hacks. It, it's really crazy, you know? Um, so obviously the most prof- high profile one that we've, we've heard of uh, recently is probably the Uber hack. Um, there's lots of things floating around on social media about that. Um, I'm sure you've heard about it. You've heard about it, haven't you, Adil? Yeah. I, I mean, from I, I, not only have I, have I heard about it, but there's like um, when I when I go out meeting customers, um, they're talking in uh, in uh, cryptic words, like they, they talk about, oh, let's not do PowerShell and stuff like that. And I'm I'm kind of be, get, kind of slow getting at it, but it, this Uber hack's become so. Uh, widespread like no there's memes out there now right <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's just getting real out there it's getting real so to the, the listeners who aren't aware of it Adil, do you want to give a run through of what you understand uh happened with the the hack i've actually just pulled up um uber's uh they published a security update uh on on it so um but before i actually before we get kind of go on the update i'll probably start off with how it's all kind of what we've heard so far or what you know what i've heard so far and done so far so um basically a number of things that seems to be involved here but through social engineering or however the there was a a breach um uh, and internal access to uber's network through that there were um access to some privileged um credentials uh which are thereafter kind of allowed um them to uh really uh have obviously privileged access to a number of uh what would i say uh, here uh, a number of tools including slack and gmail um essentially uh, really kind of putting kind of uh uber uh, uh to a stop really i mean I, it just reminds me and, and maybe I, again I've, I've i've yet to kind of really say soak in the entire uh, uh, incident here, but uh, I, I could go as far as say like this is a uh, reminds me of uh, the NHS stuff, um, but I, I don't know if it's, it's, it's I definitely wouldn't say it's gone as far as that, but it, it sounds like potentially there was that um, uh, impact to be to go as far as that. That's what it sounds like. But I mean, Rob, help me out here. I, I, I think you know I I definitely haven't done justice to. The actual kind of, if I were to summarize that situation. Uh, so my understanding of it is uh, access was gained to the network uh, via an employee. Um, so an employee was essentially compromised. Um, so it's my understanding, and I stand to be corrected here, nothing here is facts. And actually, I don't want to make this about Uber. We just kind of want to look at the um, the things that we know about the attack and just see what lessons we can draw from it uh, for our own uh, implementations of our, our zero trust security. Um, 
But essentially, uh, it's my understanding that Uber have MFA enabled. Um, so whoever hacks them would have had to have gotten around that, right? Um, so with MFA, obviously, it's uh, it's a system that uh, provides an extra layer of security. So instead of just entering your username and password, there's normally a uh, short one-time password or, or some kind of code that is generated on a trusted device. So there's different methods for that. It could be email, it could be SMS, it could be a push notification for a specific application that you have. It could be things like Google Authenticator or any sort of Authenticator app, right? So essentially the hacker would have had to have gotten around that, right? Um, so it's my understanding that what the attacker did is they set up a fake domain uh, that would relay uh, uh, Uber's real login page uh, using some tools. Uh, the only difference would be like the name uh, of the domain that they're visiting. And normally they do these things where it's just a single character in the domain that's changed. And, you know, to uh, to, to the, the average person out there who, who just glances at it, you may not even notice that the domain is slightly different because it's just like, you know, instead of an S is a five or something like that. And, you know, just the shape of the character looks the same, right? So in the address bar, for the most part, it looks the same. And, um, you know, uh, they've been able to somehow uh, relay the... MFA, right? I don't know if they were able to intercept it somehow. I don't know if there were a number of failed attempts or something like that. Um, yeah, yeah, gone. But there's also been that. So I've seen, I've, I've seen posts and tweet, tweets, right, about um, where actually they were they've contacted this employee and social engineering involved. But so and so there are there are different. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, different. Um, uh, uh, the um, people are relaying kind of different information here, so hence why I've, I've come with this. Uh, um, now, finally, it sounds like it looks like uh, Uber's finally now pu- published uh, what's actually happened, and I want to kind of really kind of stick to that. Let's kind of go with that, given that it's if there, there's been kind of different uh, narrations, uh, so to speak. Where and in the Uber one, where and I, I'll, I'll read it out actually. So it says here there was an Uber external contractor who had their account compromised by an attacker. Um, and I'm just going to quickly fast forward to the, the two-factor piece. It says here the um, attacker uh, the attacker found the, the uh, contractor's corporate password on the dark web. Um, and uh, the uh, that was based on the contractor's personal device being infected with malware. And that's how that, the, the, um, the external contractor's credentials were leaked. Yeah, it could happen now, to let's, any of let's talk exactly right. So let's talk yeah. about. But so the the interesting part is this this two factor piece, right? Where now, so Uber's published and said officially that each time the contractor received the two factor login approval request, which initially blocked access, eventually, however, the contractor accepted one, and the attacker successfully logged in. So at this point, it sounds it, it, it's actually not as elaborate as you know some uh some have kind of narrated right it's 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 actually a simple where the two-factor was going back to the, the the contractor um and uh and by mistake uh the contractor uh had accepted one of those um and um thereafter that allowed the the attacker to get into the network so that's what i've seen and i've posted the link out to you as well uh rob uh on that um on that as well Amazing. For I think there's, though, I think there's, I think there's two things there, though, right? Um, so, the first things first is the contractor is definitely human. That's the first thing, right? Um, 
they've had a number of kind of uh, failed uh, MFA requests or whatever, and you know they've one's managed to slip through to that. They they've accepted one. Maybe it was just uh, timing. The timing was good or something. Well, yeah, like that. just human, exactly. Right? It, it could have been it can literally yeah. happen to anyone, right? Well, the thing is, what well, I'm thinking as well, like it could have been, it, it could just as easily been a, a coinciding at the same time as when you're trying to log in to something, exactly. Right? So at which point exactly. you, you know, it be, it wouldn't be unreasonable for you to think, oh, that's that's part of what I'm just trying to log into, and that that's the two FA um, notification that's come in, so I would respond to that. Yeah, exactly. I think the second thing that I kind of pick up from that as well is if you've got a number of failed MFA requests. Um, I don't know how a lot of organizations are implementing this, but do you not kind of have a threshold of MFA before it's uh, flagged and blocked? Um, So let's just say maybe three attempts, just for argument's sake, to pluck a number out of thin air. After that, uh, wouldn't the account be blocked and they'd have to call kind of uh, some kind of central IT team to unblock it? uh, Raise raise a flag or something, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I I, I um, don't really know if they've got a system like that, and maybe the threshold just hadn't been met or anything like that. This is all, you know, we can only go with the information that that we're told, and you know, there's a lot of opinions out there as to what happened. Um, but it's sounding a lot more simplistic um, of an attack yeah. than, than what what a lot of people have made out to be from from what I've read on social media and LinkedIn. Uh, I think one of the biggest red flags for me though is they've managed to compromise this contractor's. Uh, credentials they managed to get into the network right so now yeah. they're now inside and it seems like once they were inside that was it like they were able to <laughs> exactly whatever right <laughs> that's exactly where i'm going with this as well <laughs> all right like to me that's like, it's, it's funny I, i've been in the last week I, I've, I've been in amsterdam giving a keynote uh, talk about zero trust security um at the uptime conference right uh which is really good and I also gave a talk last week at the Rabbit MQ Summit. Uh, both talks were about zero trust. Uh, obviously, uptime was a bit more of a general zero trust uh, and different ways to approach uh, protecting your data. Whereas Rabbit MQ was about applying a zero trust mindset to your applications and your Rabbit MQ installation, um, just to kind of increase the security posture. And I think the key message from both of those talks that I was giving to to my audience was you have to assume that your network is already breached, right? Now, let me prefix this by saying it's it's not easy. I'm not saying it's easy, you know, and there's nothing absolute about it, right? But the idea with, with Zero Trust is that if you assume that your network is already breached, then you have uh, uh, levels of controls to, to verify the identity, firstly, of uh, every single person trying to perform an action. Secondly, verify whether that person is authorized to, to perform that action. Uh, so, you know, once this contractor got in, I can't really see how a contractor should have unrestricted access to everything, if that makes sense. Assuming yeah, that the hacker got access to everything, uh, right? Well, yeah. I mean, this is the thing, right? Again, I'm, I'm, I'm going to read out what's been uh, on the update uh, that uh, Uber's published. Is from there... So after it says the attacker successfully logged in, it says from there, the attacker accessed several other employee accounts, which ultimately gave the attacker elevated permissions to a number of tools. I mean, just just that alone, right, is, is you know, questionable. I mean, if... This is what's been published officially from Uber, so I'm, you know, I'm just going to take uh, it as, it depends, as it's been, though. 
as it's been said, it right? It depends. It depends on what the contractor okay. was doing though, right? So let's just say the contractor is providing some sort of IT support so they can do password resets and so on and so forth, right? So if you've compromised that account and that account has the permissions to administer uh, other accounts, essentially, right? Mm. Which, you know, I've been a contractor yeah. in the past and that's been part of my role many years ago where I was resetting passwords and so on and so forth. So essentially, if I know which accounts are the privileged accounts and then I go ahead and I reset that password, you know, because I now have permissions to do so, then that's what's given me the elevated access. So it might not be as simple yeah. as okay. contractor no, has right. so, Agreed. Okay, that sounds... Uh, let's, let's talk about that, right? I mean... That's something that's not unfamiliar. What you just said, what you've described is something that in my you know pr- uh, previous roles, actually, you know, in the, uh, earlier or earlier in my career where I was uh, doing kind of IT uh, support and IT desk support and uh, inherently had the privileges to research passwords like that. But let's question that, just that, that process in itself, right? You know, 10, 15 years ago, that was normal. Today, are we really accepting that to be uh, a... a um, uh, an acceptable practice and and like where uh, a user an IT support user should inherently have those permissions by default i mean especially in the, in the today's world where we have all these kind of just in time access and dynamic kind of elevated permissions wouldn't you would it, would this prompt organizations to rethink that process as well i guess one alternative you you could uh kind of employ potentially right is um the same kind of things that a lot of like uh, banks and and different apps out there are are doing for, to reset your password and recover your account. So you've forgotten your password or whatever, right? So rather than just resetting the password, essentially what we do is we provide a, a series of of unique pr- private or personal information, which is another form of attestation of my identity, right? So I'm able to give my date of birth, I'm able to say what my my first pet was, I'm able to say what my first car was, where I met my wife, you know, these kind of uh, yeah. unique pieces of information where you can kind of set the question and then you can specify your answer. And then based on those things there, it should allow you to reset. So a lot of platforms have done stuff like that. I haven't really seen that at the enterprise level for their own identity and access management. It normally tends to be customer facing. I'm not really sure if that's a pragmatic approach uh, to deal with your uh, internal members of staff. Maybe um, it's a good idea. Maybe they won't be well, so hot on it, but it's a method. That, so, that, yeah, it, 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 remo- it kind of removes um, trust in a way from the contractor in this scenario, right? And basically says that, we're going to trust the individual who says that their password is um, is forgotten or whatever. Yeah. It is. and they are exactly. going to have to prove they are who they are, who they say they are before yeah. we reset that password. And that's all an automated kind of uh, multifactored system, right? Yeah, and so in my last role where I was working at a bank, we we um, dealt, that system was actually enterprise wide. Uh, deployed where uh, users were able to reset their um, Active Directory password as a, as a self-service uh, setup, uh, and um, it, it would need you know what you what who you are, what you know, uh, what you have, uh, a number of other things basically um, that would allow you to then uh, uh, reset your password as a self-service. So, I mean, in my experience that's already kind of already uh, established for that. Uh, um, uh, tier one investment bank and uh, my assumption would be this is uh, uh, uh 
would be uh, the same for other enterprises at that point. So um, you'd think so. Your point but, about, but do you yeah, remember our on. last episode? We we had um, we had uh, uh, Atam and Sarah from Microsoft on, right? Um, Sarah's actually moved on to Netflix now, um, doing a similar type of role. But I saw, yeah, uh, yeah, which is pretty good. Congratulations, Sarah. But Sarah kept impressing the point that uh, you'd be surprised how many organizations don't have certain things switched on so even as low level as having multi-factor authentication enabled on your your uh, user database and so on and so forth she's saying that the, the amount of people that are the amount of organizations that she met with that don't have these things enabled is actually shocking right so let's just go to the organizations that do have these things enabled do they then go ahead and enable things like self-service and all of the controls inside that allow a user to reset their own password and I reckon even though the technology is out there, there's still a problem of adoption. I still think a lot of organizations yeah. haven't set this up. And there, there could be a number of different reasons why. Uh, I guess, uh, let me also reiterate this. The point of this whole conversation is not to criticize. We are not criticizing here. No, it's just, just to understand uh, and learn, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think it's, it, what we're trying to do here is understand the context there and really kind of, as an I'd, I'd love to see, I'd love to treat what we're doing here as like, like a, a blameless post-mortem, right? And, yeah, absolutely. And we're doing this based on what we know uh, so far, thus far. And and based on that, you know, it's just really, uh, again, right, we know that human inherently, there there is, are, are volatile, as in like, so therefore, the, the processes are there to either review, re- remove the human from the process or to add uh, controls that will mitigate that, right? So, uh, therefore, obviously, this conversation that we're having today is really about that: is to understand what what could uh, could be improved. And, and I want to come back to your point about you know you're right that you be, uh, uh, that there are organisations and uh, should, uh, surprisingly large organisations uh, that haven't done so, uh, um, or haven't applied and maybe that's as you said you know, to, if that's to do with adoption or not but i think i also want to explore could it also be that it wasn't necessary although it was always on the horizon but it wasn't necessarily on their top of the priority list as well yeah that, that's that's a that's a real possibility but i think the problem with that is um it kind of goes back to this whole thing about security being the thing that you can spend infinite amount of money on and still never be 100% bulletproof, right? And it's like, what's the most important thing? Well, that can change based on the threats that you're facing, right? So you can say that we need to get these things sorted out. And all of a sudden, like in Uber's case, they've had this breach and they're doing their post-mortem and internal analysis and they're going to come up with some findings. So all of a sudden, what was top of their agenda is no longer top of their agenda. They're going to be tackling this thing because it's it's yeah. so public. It's so uh, uh, widely affecting people. And, you know, ultimately people may lose trust in an organization when it's breached and they need to, they need to uh, repair that. They need to mitigate the damage there, right? So, and that's the problem. I think in this game, you're always, you try to be proactive, but you're always kind of reacting to certain things. And then your agenda and priorities and those things, they always shift according to what the business requires from you. So um, I, I don't really think there's really much you can do on that sense there. You know, as security professionals, you can kind of come up with 
uh, your your priorities of things that you need to implement and controls and, and understand the impact it's going to have on people. Uh, but if the business disagrees for different reasons uh, and the business is entitled to disagree, well, then that's it. And secondly, the pressure that's on security professionals these days to deliver that first class security experience is, is, you know, it's never been higher. And, yeah, you know, exactly. they're, they're doing the best job they can. They're, they're, they're assessing things based on the information that's available. But sometimes the information is just not available to make the best decisions for you. And I'm not saying that it and wasn't the best decision. It's just, it's one of those a, funny situations, you know? Agreed. I think you, you just made a solid point that I, I wanted to actually go deep deep into as well, is that, it, as you said, you know, based on the information that's available, you then make those decisions, especially around priorities, right? But then are we also saying, and again, this is uh, some of the observations that I've made with uh, uh, a lot of the orgs that I've been uh, talking to thus far, is um, how much investment is made uh, around uh, building that information gathering aspect right as in like when we uh, at which point like detective controls are uh, added in or whether that's honeypot or detective controls or even understanding you know uh, the industry tr- industry trends uh, around the number one let's say attack threats uh, um how much of those are our organizations investing to then ensure that they have enough intel to then make those decisions. I think it's a tough one. It kind of boils back to a lot of the conversations we've been having about, um, you know, uh, defense in depth, for example, and and what that means from a a computer science point of view versus a military standpoint. And I think, uh, and this is one thing where I kind of look back at those conversations and I sympathize with, with a lot of the security professionals out there. They're under immense pressure. So when you start talking 100%. about um, things like the honeypot example, like why don't you actually just let them try to attack so that we can learn exactly how they're going to come at us and we can kind of build up controls and defenses accordingly. Man, if you put yourself in those people's shoes, that's a really scary position to be in, you know, especially when it's kind of 100%. your your head on the chopping block, so to speak, right? They're, it's, they're the ones that are accountable for things and it, it's really difficult to kind of expect them to 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 do these things right so I, like i say i really really do sympathize i don't think there's that much um investment that goes in, into these things here just simply because you know like it comes back to the whole budget conversation like how yeah, much and the back money right? you're gonna well, spend that's the thing right let's, yeah let's talk about that budget right let's talk about budget this is a good one actually very interesting what you just mentioned about budget so and this is because of recent conversations that I've been having with a number of organizations. And one of the challenges I've noticed with IT in general, right, IT expenditure, even though if you look at some of the, the, the public, uh, the public information out there where um, financial services, for example, a, a large, number of large banks are, are spending in the range of $7 billion a year on, on IT. Right. And, um, but because they are they're part of a cost center model, the constant objective uh, of that cost center is to reduce cost. I mean, if you just just go ahead and type it in Wikipedia, right? Cost center, and it will tell you that the principal objective of a cost center is to reduce cost versus yeah, a profit there. center. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, right? Versus there. a profit center, where the principal objective of a profit center is to increase profits. So I, yep. reducing the cost would be secondary in comparison to increasing re- uh, revenue or, or profits. So do, could it be that actually 
that's also had an outward ripple effect, i.e. this practice of uh, keeping costs down, which includes investment in security, investment in, um, yeah, security as a whole. And, and so there's, there's two things there I feel, feel right. There's the security that's treating, or with organizations that are treating security as an entire uh, uh, or in, in, its, in, in its entirety, rather, uh, uh, rather uh, as opposed to um, assessing security per business application or per application, but it's being treated obviously in its entirety. Therefore, it it doesn't belong to the profit center or belong to each of these application uh, business applications or line of businesses. It becomes a CISO slash CIO uh, area, right? And uh, um, Given that you're under that cost center uh, um, uh, uh, um, model, you're always constantly faced with the challenge of justifying the, the costs. Uh, and thereafter, the following year, when it comes to renewal, you're, you're facing the challenge of why is the cost increasing? Well, costs will increase if the adoption increases. But do you feel that that's, that's, that does contribute to this as well? No, I don't. I'll tell you why, right? Is um interesting. Let's just say that you 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 don't put them in the cost center model, you don't put them in a profit center model, right? Either way, every year when a budget is released, there has to be a number that is asked for, right? So the CISOs are gonna have to come up with a figure and say, This is this is what we need for our budget for this year, right? And they are going to have to justify that there's there's no two ways about it whether you're under a cost center or a profit center you kind of have to justify why you're asking for this amount of money and the problem with this is generally speaking there tends to be some kind of metric that that organizations need to use to justify the effectiveness of of investment essentially right no one ever just gives money blindly like there has to be okay we're giving this amount um, this amount of money because you've said you need to do this this and this right and there needs to be a metric to say that these things have been achieved otherwise the the business can't have confidence that their investments are actually yielding business value right and the problem with security is it's all good until it's not right <laughs> it's like you know yeah you can give well, people but this- all this money but that, you know, if the, if you're not getting breached, then as far as you're as far as you're aware, it's a good investment. And then all of a sudden, you get breached, and then the conversation goes from that to, but we gave you all this money. How comes this happened? Right? You said A, B, yeah. and C, and that's 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 the problem. So, and and when it's all said and done, you spend hundreds, hundreds of thousands, millions, hundreds of millions, billions, whatever, right, on security, and then you got little Rob from developer advocate team who just falls victim to a social engineering attack, and that's what makes it all fall down. It can happen. You know, I'm looking at something right now. Um, Revolut Bank, right? So uh, anyone that doesn't know, they're kind of a uh, one of the newer age banks. Uh, they're registered in uh, Lithuania. Uh, they were breached as well last week, right? They, they had a data uh, breach last week. Um, and I'm actually reading on the Lithuania state uh, website. So you have to report these breaches to a government department uh, in Lithuania. Uh, so I'm reading on the website, uh, according to preliminary data, access to Revolut database was obtained through the use of social engineering methods. Uh, upon noticing the security incident, Revolut security team took prompt action to eliminate the attacker's access to the company's customer data and stop the incident. Right? According to the provided revised information, the data of 50,150 customers around the world 
including 20,000 or just over 20,000 uh, in the European economic area, uh, such as names, addresses, and emails may have been affected during the incident, right? So postal addresses, telephone numbers, all these uh, pieces of information were, were potentially exposed in this, this data breach, right? Um, it says a number of affected people. Uh, the company has stated it's communicating with specific customers, as we expect. You know, that's generally speaking how the law works. And Revolut are conducting their own investigation, and the State Department is also conducting their investigation into these things as well. But you know, I don't really. They haven't really released too much information about exactly what happened and the the sequence of events that led to the breach. But they do make it very clear that it initiated from a social engineering attack, and that's kind of becoming the most common form of, of of attack these days. Just simply because, as humans, we are just the weakest link. You know, we we do make mistakes, and we are going to fall for it. You know, but, you, it's, it happens. Yeah. I mean, but the thing is, right? It's still as you said. Okay, fine. Like, no, there's not enough information out there, right? But I think maybe that's where the focus needs to be. Like, how does one? manage to have or how does one like a hacker or an attacker um manage to gain such wide access through a single person's like social engineering by a single person like, as in, like it's let's worth come back the to conversation man it's really worth the conversation yeah. and it's it's it, i mean it's really piqued my interest here or curiosity rather right it's like we talk about principle of least privileged access. We talk about, okay, fair enough. We understand the social engineering aspect. We understand the human error. We understand that. And then there's two factor. There's now, you know, biometric uh, login and all that stuff that I've been thought about. But you know, that aside, how does one still manage to get access from, from one person or, or from this one account or is, is able to then elevate their privileges Um without being undetected uh, at that point you, you know you know what was really funny actually is um so, so when i was i was in amsterdam last week after i gave my keynote um i spoke to a number of developers right they came up to me and they had never heard of this thing called principle of least privilege you know um they're developers they want to build features they want to ship these things um they don't really want to care about security which i totally understand where they're coming from right so when I'm telling them things like principle of least privilege, like they're, they're a bit concerned because they're like, well, you know, you're talking about taking away our access rights to things like databases, for example. But when things go wrong, we need access to those things. And we haven't got time to go through red tape and get approvals here, there and everywhere. Uh, and that's the thing. I've worked in, in organizations in the past where these situations come up and people are just given access because of those things. And then maybe... The lesson learned there by the organization is, okay, so-and-so and so-and-so need access to these things here just in case things go wrong, right? Um, but it's a risk. So it was interesting hearing that from the, the developer because even though I already knew this, right, just hearing people say it just kind of validated my thinking, right? So this is when I started telling them about the uh, proof of concept tool that, that my team have built, uh, which we're calling Rift. And essentially, it's event-driven access controls. So when an incident is triggered, whoever the on-call engineer is, the moment they acknowledge that incident, it grants them access to all the underlying infrastructure uh, associated with that incident. The moment that is resolved and they hit resolved on their alerting platform, then it revokes that. And I think that's kind of where we need to start moving to is this whole event-driven model because you can't just be given like unfiltered access to people, but at the same time, you can't restrict their productivity. And you can't, if you think like, giving these developers access to these systems so that they can troubleshoot things is actually a business-critical decision because 
if things have gone wrong and your platform has gone down, well, you're not making any money while this platform is down. So it's important that they're able to resolve it quickly. So it's understandable from a business point of view when they say, give so-and-so and give so-and-so the access, but then they're opening up themselves to a whole another realm of, of attacks, right? And Or potential attacks. And that's what, what we kind of need to find a balance in act. So my, my view, and this is what I was speaking with a lot of people about, I think we need to move to an event-driven model. Uh, and I think we need to build our platforms and applications to allow for us to do these types of things. And I think we've built a really cool proof of concept to kind of demonstrate what I'm talking about. You know, there'll be stuff out there um, that kind of demonstrates this and shows what we've achieved so far and, and what we're kind of trying to test uh, with people just to get feedback. But honestly, that's I think that's how it happens. I think that especially startups, you know, I've worked in startups. I had unrestricted access to everything and then the startup uh, it grows it matures maybe they get acquired or they get funding but all of a sudden like all these controls that should have been in place in the beginning you know they're not there now and oh it's rob you know you just trust rob so it's cool leave him he needs access to that and these things just spiral out of control you know that's just how it happens yeah no 100 i agree with that i, I think like and that's the surprise as you say surprisingly that there are a lot more companies doing uh our, you know that practice is is not the anomaly uh, pretty much is becoming that default uh um and uh where it just if something goes wrong we need access yeah, obviously or all access type of thing and go ahead but i want to and and that principle in principle what you mentioned here 100 percent agreed right as in like it needs to be a lot more dynamic the access needs to be dynamic yeah it needs to be as you say event driven um based on whether that's based on the health of, of an application um and then even when and 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 when those health uh, of those services or multiple services come back up Maybe that's uh, the, the 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 point of auto revoking. But I wanna I wanna add a what's the word I'm looking for here. I I, I want to make sure we uh, uh, let, let's build upon that, expand on that in the sense that I I think there that same principle. Uh, a, a lot of uh, I had a chat with a developer uh, last week. Um, kind of similar conversation where I need to be able to access this X Y Z right, um, but. Uh, my question at that point would be, uh, that's fine. You need to access, but are we saying that, oh, yeah, I want to go ahead and access and figure it out, i.e. check those logging and, and, and monitoring and all that stuff locally, i.e. to that application. Oh, surely are we then, are we, should we not say actually it's conditional, i.e. that yes, the service has gone down, that there will be a dynamic piece, but actually prior to that, we want to be able to, uh, provide a dashboard maybe with all of the logs and uh, uh, um, audit logs and, and the telemetry that the said SRE slash developer who will be troubleshooting can be able to view, read, all of that stuff, which is read-only, right? As in that, that's what read-only access that doesn't even need um, yeah. a actual remote access to the application or the host of that application at that point. So I, I would say that it's, it, although in principle, yes, the end goal is that we want to be able to create that dynamic uh, um, kind of uh, elevated privileges, um, but definitely to add those kind of conditionals uh, within there to say, actually, these are the steps that must have been followed prior to kind of allowing that and because otherwise it's too easy to say you know what I, I'm, I'm not going to bother with the centralized uh you know monitoring and logging that we have there and be able to actually start applying practices of searching auditing and, and telemetry searching the audit logs or telemetry of the said application uh um in that uh, area 
I'm just going to go straight in there and I'll just figure it out there. Uh, and that's too easy to, it's it, the point I'm trying to make is that at which point you've lowered the barrier entry to that dynamic privilege access. Rather, you want to be able to find that balance where actually, you know what, I want, I want the developer, I want to be able to enable and empower the developer to do as much as they can uh, whilst finding that balance of actually, without, um, whilst reducing privileged access uh, without hindering their uh, their workflow and i'm sure you'd agree with that yeah i understand what you're saying and um i'll be the first to admit that this this proof of concept we developed and the whole idea hasn't been uh threat modeled oh yeah and that's fine that's the the idea is like you know this is not something that we're, we're we're looking for people to run in production or anything like that this is something where we're trying to develop like this idea to see if this is something as an approach right not at all so I think that's the other thing is we can't focus on tools and products, right? I think we just kind of have to absolutely not, yeah. the approach and the uh, workflow. Uh, and and this is kind of the, the approach that we're, we're testing, right? Um, so that is, you know, and that's one of the things I thought about. I was like, okay, how do I um, abuse this? How do I create an incident so that I mm. can... So imagine you've compromised one of the on-call engineers, right? And they don't know they've been compromised, right? Because you've done nothing with it. Because what you want to do is you want to wait for them to get the privileged uh, access and then you're going to make your move, right? Yeah. Um, so, you know, these things, they, they have crossed my mind. And I'm like, okay, cool. So we are going to have to fret mode this at some point, right? But first, let's just yeah. make sure that the workflow, just it works for people, that the whole event-driven approach is something that we are, are enthusiastic about, right? Uh, and if not, why not, right? Because obviously... Agreed, agreed. We, 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 can, we can learn stuff from that. But that's not to say that this this is uh, solid and bulletproof. You know, this is it's something oh, no. that I'm kind of advocating people to start thinking about and tell us why it will work or why it won't work. But we're definitely going to need the community to help us threat model this because 100%. the thing about the thing about threat models is, you know, I, I can I can threat model this with my team. I can uh, rope in uh, corp security and who have got a lot more experience than me and say, hey, help me threat model this idea, this approach, or whatever it is, right? And we're going to do this from such a biased point of view. We're going to do it based on what we know, our knowledge and our experience, right? But people got different knowledge and different experiences out there. And if they threat model it as well, then we can start to gather all of these things and we can build a much bigger picture. Uh, And at that point, the community, the industry can decide, is this an approach that we think is viable? Um, But going back to your point about developers and, and enabling them to be productive, but at the same time, not opening up too much. Do you think things like session recording helps increase that type of confidence in security versus productivity balance in theory in theory yes i say and i want to you know caveat that say by in theory because as in like i I, my understanding is that that was pretty much the reason why i mean there's the auditing aspect you know the session recording is there uh to meet the auditing aspect but in practice i'm not i i'm not confident to say that um, it is a common practice uh, within organizations where they are retrospectively viewing these sessions and learning from those, um, uh, or even maybe uh, as part of the, say, post-mortem or retrospective, to then say, actually, so let's, for example, PagerDuty, they now recently, uh, I don't know, actually, I don't know how recent it is, but they've acquired a the company called Rundeck, and Rundeck yeah, is yeah. meant to be kind of this, operation run book right so yeah it's cool it's really cool yeah so let's just use that as an example where okay so first time issues gone down developers gone in 
done a bit of troubleshooting and maybe found the issue but from that session recording we've what we've learned from it okay these are the the, whether that's you know, commands or queries, whatever has been uh, issued here to find the problem, we want to now make that repeatable and add it into the run deck, right? So uh, which point we could say is, okay, they, these are, uh, given us this from the last time, these are a number of queries that were made that helped us uh, uh, diagnose uh, and find the root, uh, root cause and an issue. So what we want to do is that, you know, actually let's go ahead and make that repeatable. Go ahead and add it in run deck. So the next time when it does go down, we go ahead and run this uh, run deck or, or, or um, you know, uh, run book um, before then, uh, at which point, before then deciding uh, uh, whether to give elevated uh, privilege access or not. Um, so that's where, I, 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 coming back to, you know, your, to answer your question here is that, it's in that in, in a scenario like that is where I feel session recording um, would give would add value. Now, whether that's actually a common practice or not, I, I, I don't think I'm confident enough to say that's that's something that uh, is common or widespread. I, I don't know what your thoughts are. That's true, and I think the whole idea about having a, a set of troubleshooting steps that you would uh, expect your on-call engineers to perform and automate that—I don't think that's actually a new practice. You know, I, I was doing this years ago um, with, with a, a specific organization that I did some work with, and um, you know, uh, it got to the point where every time there was an outage or every time something went down, it was always the same things that we need to find out. We need to check these metrics. We need to check that. We need to check that. And we just figured that we, we we should automate this, you know. We should, if it goes down, then these things should happen. And then when it happens, then wake us up, right? So that way yeah, we we don't have to do these things. And, and you know, Uber would love this, right? Do you, you want to know how we did that? How? <laughs> PowerShell. Go ahead. <laughs> PowerShell. <laughs> I'm telling you. So it's like, you know, honestly, the problem isn't the tools, right? The, pro- the problem. No, it's not. It's, 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 it's. It's one of those things where, you know, we, we talked, I think it was the episode we did with, with Brian and Dan, uh, where we talked about people and process uh, and how that glues uh, uh, the whole people and technology together and how key uh, a component that is. I think we even discussed this with Jamie as well. Um, you know, an organization can say, we have this, we have that, we have that, we've never been breached. And anytime there's ever been an attempt, we've been able to detect it and so on and so forth, right? And that's great. That works for your organization because you've been able to use your processes to glue your people and your technology together as one, you know, kind of unified uh, unit, right? Um, not every organization is at that point in their maturity level. And I think it's it's about, this is why I like things like um, when the when these, these data leaks happen and people publish information about how, because I think it's for Agreed. us to learn how that happened and take these learnings there's no way we should look at uber or or revolut or we know twilio got hacked last month as well um i've just found out today that uh i'm not sure if it's rockstar games or if it's the company that owns them but this is the studio behind the game grand theft auto uh they have been breached and the new grand theft auto 6 game uh some footage and some gameplay has been leaked uh from that uh, as a result which is uh, actually really saddening for me who's a gta fan um, yeah, but absolutely. There's, there's there's a lot of lessons in these things, and and like yeah, I I just I, I understand the reluctance to put too much information out there, um, 
But I think at the same time, if you put information out there, the industry learns from it and then you can in turn learn from the industry. So it's kind of a a cycle of learning, a cycle of improvement. Uh, You give some, you take some. And that's kind of almost how open source works. So two things, right? Um, So interestingly, uh, Uber's uh, published that uh, there are reports over the weekend that the same actor breached uh, video game maker rockstar games so they're alluding to the this is the same source of, of uh, yeah so that's I interesting i didn't know that that's, that's very interesting i don't think that yeah. um rockstar games have put too much information out there i think that because you've you got to think right that the the impacts for rockstar games versus the impact for uber uber we're talking about customer data right that could be you and i yeah pii uh, yeah exactly you, you, you same with revolute right you're talking about customer data whereas with with uh Rockstar Games, what they're talking about isn't customer data. They're talking about something that they try to keep secret in-house so that they can make a big announcement when it's time to launch intellectual property. It's the intellectual property that has been uh, has been breached. And, you know, not to say that one is worth more or less than the other, but, you know. They're both business impacting, right? Exactly. But I think when it's customer data, though, there's a compelling demand to, you know, like, yeah. yeah, if I, if I get an email from from any company to say that my data has been leaked, I want to know how it happened. Like, and, and you need to put that information 100%. out there so that I understand. Um, whereas, oh, you know, I see your point. Yeah, yeah, Rockstar Games, they ain't got to say anything. Like, I'd love them to, but they don't have to. You know, like they don't owe okay. it to anyone. Yeah. <laughs> so it's other than their shareholders, yeah. and they do that in a board meeting. So, so, so that's the second point I wanted to make. Right, is that a, a lot of it? I don't know. For companies to come forward and really be open, right? A lot of it is to do with the culture. I.e., I still feel that we're not we're not mature yet uh, from that whole blameless culture aspect and the blameless post mortem to the point where you know we we're as in companies would issue without guilt. I.e., when they start issue it, 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 without guilt, more actually intentionally, so that everyone as a community can learn from it. And I feel that's we, we we haven't matured in that sense where and you can see that from reactions right I, I mean yeah there are we're seeing growing number of reactions where they are empathizing but then you also see reactions of um uh the crowd or audience uh really kind of throwing a lot of guilt and as you said you know because they owe it to the people kind of thing um so a lot of that contributes to that uh, behavior as to how open should I be uh, or how open should one organization be? Uh, and I think, that, you know, maybe that's where we want to start. I think that that's, that's one aspect of it. Uh, I think the other aspect is, um, uh, how do I put this? Organizations feel that the, the less they say, the less they're given away for potential uh, threat actors to compromise them, right? And one example of this is I once worked uh, for a, an organization who I won't name, and I did a number of projects uh, at this organization. Uh, and on my LinkedIn profile, they, they, I don't even know if they still got this right, but they, they used to have this section called projects where you can list the projects you did, right? And, you know, I listed the projects that I did and the the technologies that I worked with and so on and so forth. Yeah, uh, man, I remember that. I did, yeah, I did that like one evening, and by the time I got into the office the next morning, right, I got I got called into my manager's office at the direction of the IT director telling me that I got to take all that stuff down, right? I was like, why? It goes, because if a threat actor sees all of that kind of stuff there, then um, 
they'll start forming ways to attack. And I'm like, okay, cool. So you don't think half the world is using Cisco. You don't think half the world is using Cisco firewalls to protect their networks, yeah. right? Like, like they already know that that's a, it's a possibility, right? So, but you know, uh, basically the long and short of it is uh, you shouldn't really have anything up on your LinkedIn profile past really your name, your previous roles and what your current job title is. And that's it. Like you shouldn't really have anything past that, right? So I'm like, okay. So there, and there's this culture that speaking about, and I get this actually just when I, when I speak to the community about vault, right. Um, if I'm going to get feedback from the community about how they're using vault and, you know, the things that I need to learn from their, their workflows and so on and so forth, people are very reluctant to give me that feedback. Firstly, secondly, those that are prepared to give me that feedback will only do so in private. They will never do it over a public domain where other people can listen and learn from that too. Right. Um, yeah, agreed. And it's that whole thing about well, what are we doing here? Are we exposing things that just leave us vulnerable? And you know, I don't know the answer to that. I don't know if we really are, but that's it's a thing. No, right? It comes back to that culture thing though, again, right? As in, like, okay, so there's the there's the as you say, right? There's two things. There's the culture of okay, I, uh, the fear of not giving away too much because it makes me look bad or, or you know, uh, it makes me look incompetent. And the other fear is that actually by giving away too much, I've uh, um, I've exposed my yeah. weaknesses, uh, and, and uh, I get that I more both... than anything else. That's that's what I'm yeah. getting from from people more than anything. The blame culture is the blame culture, man. That's that goes beyond our industry. That's 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 a human flaw, if you ask me. Agreed, agreed. You're right. Yeah, I mean, Grenfell Tower is a is a massive example of that, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, but uh, the and you're right. I think, but uh, as you say, right, is that if. I'm unable to, I think, I mean, if I was a CISO or as, as an organization, if I'm unable to publish uh, um, some of the work that I've done, um, I must question, is it because there are known gaps or is it because the, we're, we're fearing the unknown gaps? And, and I think a bit of both, you know, to be honest. And I think like, I think what you know can cause fear and then that causes even more fear about what do you not know, you know, and that's, um, it's, it's, it's a tough balancing act. So, you mm. know, but I think one example on the opposite of that, right. And I don't, it's not necessarily a security thing, but uh, nonetheless, it did take down their, their platform is I watched a talk, uh, from, uh, I think one of the principal engineers at Monzo bank. Uh, I can't remember what conference this was, this was at, but they talked about an outage, which, you know, I myself was affected by because I, I bank on Monzo as well. Um, and they talked about exactly how it happened. That was the basis of the talk. This is what we did. These are the mistakes we made, right? You know, this is how you can learn from those mistakes. And actually, I loved it because, you know, throughout that whole conference, yeah. there was a lot of success stories. And here you have Monzo Bank saying, we failed, you know, we're human. We made a mistake. And here's the mistake we made, right? And this is how it happened, you know. The actual thing that caused the outage happened months before, but it went undetected because it didn't really impact anything until another change was made. And, you know, I'm not going to get into the mechanics of that specific incident, but I really love the fact that they put themselves out there. And, you know, Agreed. as a result, as an industry, we sat back, we listened to that, we learned from it, you know, just as they've learned from it. And actually, I think the fact that they put it out there shows real maturity in their lessons learned approach. 100%. Not only are they sharing this with the industry, but that means they're sharing it internally, which means that they're, they're, they're actually implementing things to prevent this happening again, or at least reduce 
the the probability of it happening again, uh, which is important. But I tell you, hundred percent. I tell you what's funny though, right? Is that uh, first of all, one thousand percent respect to Mon- Monzo's engineering team and their engineering culture. Right? I, I've I've learned so much. Yeah, the world class. Reading world class. Yeah, but you know, but you know what's interesting? What's funny is that, and this is again, I, I suppose I can't speak for everyone. This is my view here, but the more Monzo shares their failures, the more I see them as leaders in that space. 100%, 100%. The more confidence I have in banking with them. That's, that's the reality, you know? As someone yeah. who understands <laughs> software and tech, like when I when I re- listen to these things and I say, ah, okay, cool. So that time where it was down for like 15 minutes or something like that, that's what caused it. Okay, cool. And the fact that you were able to ascertain all of that in minutes and you were able to implement a fix and push that to production so quickly. Okay. And be confident to come out with it, right? Be confident to come out and say that as well. And, yeah, and with the details that do, right? It's like, honestly, it, it, I, that's how, it, as you say, increases the confidence. Was that saying uh, the, the devil you know? The devil you know is better than the devil you don't, right? You don't. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. But then I think maybe that's for people like us that kind of understand how these things work. And when it's communicated to us, we can kind of break it down uh, with an engineering mindset. Um, you know, my wife, when this happened, she was just like, I can't access my Monzo funds. And um, she, she was pissed. You know, she she needed access to the funds at that moment. And, you know, there's nothing really you can say to her. So, you know, like I think within the engineering community, we're, we're always going to welcome these types of things with open arms. Whereas I think the general customer who's not within that community they don't care about that. They you know just what? want to make sure exactly. they get access to their funds when they need it, right? And that's interesting as well. As that without going off on a tangent, it's like, you know, um, if majority of their audience, Monzo's audience, are as you say, layman banking customers, so when they're publishing these technical blogs, the intended audience at which point is not necessarily they're in. Well, it's not necessarily just just their Monzo customers, but beyond that. So actually. They're, they're intentionally yeah exactly they're, so they're intentionally publishing this for their peers and, and and the rest of the industry say hey guys this is what i've done i hope this helps for you too kind of thing right it's like honestly so commendable i mean we had on we had on on from from uh monzo right and yeah that came about because of another engineering blog they did about how they implement um uh uh, security controls and, and identity with cryptography and vault and the detail that and, he, he went exactly, into right exactly exactly it was just through that i was like no nah, we've got to get on on this is this is impeccable and you know i've been to so many meetups in london uh hosted actually at monzo offices where their engineering teams have given talks about different things uh from security to to application uh delivery and and so on and so forth, right? And, you know, you always learn a lot from them. So, you know, I think we're reaching the hour mark. I think we should wrap it up now. I think that the, the key thing, the key takeaway for me is um, it doesn't really matter how much money you spend. People are still human, right? I think if you invest money in training people, it may help. Um, but even that is not bulletproof, right? So we have to try you to You know what I want to do, right? What I was going to say is we have to, try and put, we have to try and put systems in place that protect ourselves from ourselves right um yeah you know because not everything that happens to us is malicious I and mean, sometimes it's just a mistake and that mistake can lead to giving malicious threat actors uh the things that they need right so i think we need to try to figure out what these systems are in our organizations uh and essentially like i i 
don't necessarily, I don't really know the ins and outs of, of Uber specifically and how they were able to get access to to all of these things, right? Um, like, and why, what the the identity and access makeup is that allowed for something like that. Um, you know, I think it's a good conversation to have. If anyone from Uber is ever open to coming on the the podcast and and sharing this with us and and helping us learn from that, I would love that. Um, but ultimately, I don't really think it's a blame thing. I think it's happened now. Hundred you know? percent. Um, we, we learn from it. We move right. It, it shouldn't. It shouldn't happen through this avenue again, right? It may happen again for a different avenue uh, because you know no system's bulletproof. But we should we should as an industry try and learn from this avenue and then do what we can to to protect us from these threat actors and from ourselves and making mistakes, man. No, hundred percent agreed. I think for me, I, you're right. Right? There's the there's there's the technical openness or rather you know the, the technical aspects and being open about the technical but i would be super curious and, and this probably comes back to our the beginning of our conversation around decision making for a CISO around budgets and stuff like that i would love for uber CISO or even you know CISO minus one but there's you know, security leadership to um share their thoughts and their learnings from this and, you know and not and this may not necessarily be a technical one but more of a business decision you know and their learnings from that and how that maybe shapes their thinking for next year. I would love to, I'm super curious and actually wanting to know more about that. I think the interesting thing about that is whatever learnings they get from that, when they request a certain budget, I think they get the budget, you know, and that's just the nature of how business works, right? This has happened. It's going to have an adverse effect on, on the business and these things here. So when it comes to making sure this never happens again, so and so gets what they ask for. It's as simple as that, you know. Even the justification is out the window because the justification has already happened just through the data leak, right? So um, yeah, I mean, it's not that. so much that. More so, like, okay, now that I know what I know, it it shapes helps me helps me shape what I should be prioritizing on, kind of thing. Is what for I'm now, about. for now, but I, I do yeah. think that's a dynamic. That's a dynamic conversation, you know. That, yeah, agree, that, yeah, that changes yeah, tomorrow sense. when something new happens and so on and so forth. Um, but yeah, man, like I, that's that's kind of all we have time for. You know, there's been a lot, uh, a lot of things that have happened. Uh, if you have any insights that you'd like to share, if you have any opinions about these things that you would like to, or learnings that you would like to share, or a different perspective on some of the the information that has been published out there, please do reach out to us. Uh, we're always happy to get guests on the show to discuss these things. But uh, we just felt that we should record this episode as soon as we could because it's kind of current affairs and. You know, more more and more companies are being breached, and I think it's less about blaming these companies and more about understanding why is this happening and what can we do to protect our industry. Um, but that's it from us. Um, thank you so much for listening, and we will catch you on the next episode. You've been listening to Keeping It Secure with your host DevOps Rob and DevOps Adil. Be sure to join us next time. 